Business as Unusual is a thought-provoking podcast that explores the innovative strategies, disruptive ideas, and unconventional practices driving successful leaders and companies in the ever-evolving world of modern business. Subscribe, comment, and share for weekly inspiration with our host, Aisela. Hi, welcome to Business as Unusual. This is Aisla, and I am here today with Ethan Decker, PhD of Applied Brand Science. Welcome to the show, Ethan. Thanks for having me, Aisla. I've actually been looking forward to this for a while. Before we hop into the nitty gritty of brand science, what's the last artist you got lost in? Music-wise, I'm really stuck on Haim right now. H-A-I-M, it's a sister, three-sister band. And they've got some great poppy, catchy rock music. And so that's really stuck in my head, especially their latest release, Women in Music Part 3. I'll check that out. That's my secret agenda with the show is that people tell me all the cool things and then I can stay hip and trendy. I'm three years out, I think that. <laughs> <laughs> album was a couple of years ago. I'm older now. Hip and trendy is like a 10 year span, I think. If I'm not in the 80s, I'm feeling a little hip. There you go. It's which decade am I closer to? So apply yeah. brand science. What in your life set the stage for you to start this business or see it as a need? I was in marketing, in advertising, in ad agencies for about 20 years. And I kept seeing ideas die, not because they're bad ideas. In fact, some of them were great ideas. Some of them were brilliant ideas, but they died because people disagreed about how advertising even works. People didn't even have a common understanding about how to grow a brand and what do you do to grow a brand? Do you go after people who love Twizzlers right now and that's all they want is classic Twizzlers? Or do you go after People who want sours and you've got to do innovation to make sour Twizzlers now because Sour Patch Kids are killing it or whatnot. And so there were these fundamental disagreements, which led to a lot of arguments and debates about the work itself and often led to picking stuff that didn't work. As a scientist by training, because I have a PhD in ecology, naturally I'm in advertising. As a scientist by training, I dug into what we actually know to be really true consistently and universally across brands, across categories, across continents, about how shoppers shop, how brands grow, and how advertising works. And there is a science to it. So I saw a need to unearth that, so to speak, because a lot of people still don't even know it exists, and then share it. So I don't even need to do the science myself, but I help brands apply the science of growth to their companies to be more effective. That sounds helpful. And one thing that I've noticed is there's a big, I don't know if I want to say big, it seems like there's more of a trend towards people talking about data-informed, I mean, everything. I feel like I see some challenges in that. So I do actually think the science background helps because sometimes it looks like people say data and they don't necessarily know what that means or data informed. Is it possible to share any sort of awareness that you can see and how to make some of those distinctions? Absolutely. You're right. There is a huge trend to focus on data informed or data driven marketing. 
someone even said data is the new oil, that if you've got the data, then you've got the major resource of our economy. But there is a problem, there are a couple problems there. The first one is bad data. There is so much bad data mixed in with the good data, you would be amazed that there are lots of companies that track what we do on the internet and they try and assemble a picture of who you are. And apparently, the accuracy of some of the world's best programs can predict your gender with a 50% success rate, which means you might as well flip a coin. Right. So there's a lot of bad data out there. Another example of bad data is there's tons and tons of information on social media that people share about what brands they use or what brand they're pissed off at lately because it did something. But that's not necessarily indicative of what the mass population believes. Because as we know, 99% of people on the internet are lurkers and only 1% really post things. The rest just read it. So you're getting bad data if you assume that whatever flame war there is on Twitter is indicative and representative of how people really feel about Bud Light, for instance, or Twizzlers. Um, So step one, just bad data is a big problem. And then step two, there's a massive difference between data-driven this, data-informed that, and actual science, which leads to principles and leads to predictions. For instance, you can gather oodles of data to know which landing page works best to convert shoppers to your website or at your website. Famously, the Obama administration changed the photo they used and increased click-throughs like 40%. You can get tons of data to do that. But that doesn't give you any principle by which to operate in the future. And good science takes a lot of time. And there often are other factors and circumstances that make it hard to always predict precisely what's going to happen. But the good science gives you principles. And then you don't need to always go out and what I say is retest for gravity, (laughs) right? We know gravity exists. There's a principle about it. There's an equation about it. If you know the diameter of your planet, then you can predict exactly how far you can jump. I like to say I'm testing gravity when I drop things, but that's... Yeah. It's not an intentional test. Sorry, I'm testing. Just testing gravity here. Don't worry (laughs) about me. Just testing it out. There is a big difference between what people say is data-driven and what truly evidence-based or scientific principles are about marketing and advertising and brands. Something you said once that really stuck with me is that when people fill out surveys, all we know is how they want to present themselves on the survey. We don't know anything about their behavior. And I thought that was such an insightful and accurate assessment of another aspect of how this data collection is flawed. Mm-hmm. I love the example of millennials only want to buy products from companies that share their values and take stands on things. And that kind of statement comes from surveying a bunch of millennials online and saying, do you prefer to buy from brands that have social missions? And only assholes say no. And, and you don't want to look like an asshole. Yeah. So that's that. That's one of the first questions of any data science or any of this inquiry, which is what are you really measuring? And are you measuring what you think you're measuring? Because oftentimes you're not. Knowing what question to ask is really important and not always 
highlighted in a way that is helpful to understand. Maybe people don't know what question to ask about what question to ask even. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's true. And then the other maddening piece of the puzzle is how do you ground truth this, so to speak? Like ground truth things when you take a satellite photo or an aerial photo, but then you say, I think those are wells that people are drilling. Well, you actually send someone down on the ground to to test whether what you measured from space is truly an oil well or not. So similarly, if you're going to ground truth a study about millennials, then you would say, okay, millennials claim they only want to purchase from companies that have social equity programs. You go out and you look at what they buy and you look at the brands they're wearing and then you compare that to the survey and you say, is it true? Are we actually measuring what we think we're measuring? And of course, a lot of the times when you compare what people say versus what they do, they're pretty damn different. Yeah, I feel that. So this is a business as unusual. What would you say is unusual about what you're doing over at Applied Brain Science? Oh, a couple of things. I hand out a lot of chocolate in my business meetings. I play a lot of music. I do a lot of things that seem silly and seem frivolous or superfluous to serious brand development and brand growth and strategy. But I do that because it actually loosens people up. It gets them into a, an open mindset where they can learn more. When people are, fun, are having fun, they can be more creative and they can focus on the positives and being productive instead of grinding their gears and having their butt cheeks clenched. So that's a little unusual. But the bigger thing, I think, is that I'm pausing to look at actual science and the accrued wisdom of 50 to 100 years of real study to figure out what really works in marketing and what doesn't, as opposed to just jumping on the latest fad or following the latest guru and just, or just using gut instinct and what people have always told us about brand loyalty and brand love and crap like that. Do you think that makes you better at listening to your, your clients that you're, you don't walk in like with the answers, like you have these laws and levers of brand science that you've been identifying through the study of the science. But it sounds to me like you're also, when you're working with someone, you're actually going to listen to what they're talking about, not come in, like you said, with AI is going to solve everything or whatever that is. I, it's a mix. You mentioned the laws and levers, and that's my framework, which is there are laws and I'm going to tell you about them and they might upset you or fly in the face of what you believe, but they apply to every brand under the sun, every shopper under the sun, whether you're B2B or B2C, whether you're a service or a product, whether you're in Australia or in Amsterdam. So sometimes I do have to actually show you things and teach you things and tell you stuff. And I do tend to know that stuff deeper or at a more deeper level than a lot of the clients. But then how you apply those requires a whole lot of understanding of your category and your brand and your ambitions. So I do a lot of listening on that side of the equation to say, what do you want to do? Where do you want to be? What are you capable of? So for instance, when it comes to marketing tactics, Spotify can do a lot of different things because they've got oodles of data about you and me and what songs we listen to over and over again and how far through tracks we listen and when and what time of the day and do we listen to more podcasts or this or that. 
Do we use headphones? They know everything about you. So they can do things marketing-wise that let's say Johnny Walker can't. Johnny Walker doesn't know how you drink your, your whiskey. They don't know how much whiskey you drink every night. And they don't know whether you drink it after a hard day or every single day. So yeah, listening is a big piece of the puzzle for sure. Can you share a law? I know them because I have had the privilege of hearing your talk a few times, but just for folks that are listening that maybe don't have that same experience. Sure. One of the most well-known of the laws, and none of them are very well-known, so that's a joke, but one of the most well-known is something called the law of double jeopardy, which is an empirical pattern. It's a law of nature, a law of brands, which finds that in every category, the largest brand has the most customers and they buy the most frequently. In other words, they have the highest household penetration, which gives them a lot of customers. And those customers are, high, are more loyal or repeat their purchases more often than for small brands. So small brands are punished twice, so to speak. Small brands have fewer customers who buy less often. Uh, and that's a little surprising because there's a belief that there are small niche brands out there with rabid, fanatic, loyal fan bases or customer bases. And when you look at the data, it's not very hard to find that the data say that that's just not true. That kind of sucks for small businesses, for small brands, or does it? I guess maybe they don't well, need as many because they're functioning at a smaller level. In a way, yeah. When you spell out some of this science stuff, it starts to feel pretty, pretty crappy for small brands. Oh, we're screwed. But no, small brands can do some things much, much better than large brands. One of them is they could potentially command much higher margins. If you can get a much higher profit margin, then you don't need to have a large market share and high penetration because you're making fat margins off of every sale. Another thing a small brand can do that a big one can't usually is innovate. A lot of innovation comes from outside big companies, not within them. So you've got the opportunity to change things radically. Like Tesla is a, a very small brand compared to Ford and Toyota. So they've been able to do things that Ford and Toyota could not push through. It was just too hard to change the staffing and the budgeting and the machinery of those companies to, to embrace electric vehicles. And then the third thing small brands can do much better is they can, they can fight unfair, so to speak. They can break some of the rules of the category because they're not constrained by years of tradition and a massive legal team on their, on their staff. I guess so. that does make it sound a little bit better. <laughs> Who do you typically work with? Who do you find thrives with what you have to offer? I have found that CMOs of companies, mid to large size, but smaller companies too, are really receptive to what I talk about and are like, they get the most value out of what I can bring, which is I work with them and their teams to understand these marketing laws and get a real good grip on how, you know, how gravity works, so to speak, in the world of advertising and branding. And once they get a grip on that, then building their brand and doing their marketing and advertising makes a lot more sense and the decisions are easier and more clear about what they should do. So I do the training 
for those CMOs who are ready and eager to do some more effective marketing, science-based or evidence-based marketing. And then if they want me to stick around and actually help build their brand or fix their brand, then I do that too. It sounds fun, like a puzzle of some sort. Oh, it is. It's a very complex and often maddening puzzle. Do you have any advice that you can recall that changed how you think about branding and marketing? Yeah, absolutely. One one big piece of advice was sciency, but it was don't just look at the successes because then you don't actually compare success and failure. So for instance, you look at successful companies and they all have visionary leaders that were driven to succeed. A lot of failures were too. So that's mm. not a difference. Another one is every successful company has a CEO who has vowels in their name. And it's okay, that's true, but that's also true of every failed company ever. Just by looking at the successes, you don't always learn the difference between what makes a success and what makes a failure. So you got to look at the failures as well to compare. That was a great piece of advice. Yeah, it does actually sound super wise. So running a business and I think being in marketing has its challenges and its moments of exhaustion. What do you do to keep yourself going, inspired, recharged, ready to come in with the fun music, chocolate, new ideas? I do all the things, Isla. Like my self-care regimen is huge. Brene Brown will be so proud of me. <laughs> in truth, I try to do all of the things and it's there are a lot of different things that add up to maintaining my sanity. Number one, sleep. Sleep is the best medicine. We still don't really know what it does to us, except we know that you can't. They've taken the sleep deprivation out of the Guinness Book of World Records because you will die if you don't sleep. Sleep, number one. Uh, number two, taking care of the body. So exercise, diet, breathing, uh, meditating, which is body-mind combo. So starting with the body, you got to take care of the body. and And then from there, the enjoyment, the fun, the relaxation. So I like to make cocktails. So I have a little corner bar in my garage. I call it Pits and Stems. It's the most exclusive speakeasy in Boulder. I I do exercise. I go running with friends or cycling with friends, and that's fantastic. And then I do fun stuff whenever I can, whether it's dancing. I still do a little swing dancing, but not much. Or just hanging out with friends and doing fun stuff. Yeah, the whole thing, all the things, all the whole things. self-care regimen. You recommended that movie to me, Stutz, and I feel like the shorthand of the life force was a great one for me. So anytime I started to feel a little challenged or something, I'm like, how's my life force? Yes. So, yeah. I love that they did that because Stutz is an old, wizened Jewish therapist. But the life force, yeah, it's like nice shorthand. What's your battery level? Where's your yeah. battery at? Yeah, I used to have a rule that if my cell phone was low... That and it needed recharging. I probably did too. It was my. I was like, if I yeah. plug my cell phone in, I probably need to plug me in somewhere. <laughs> there was even there was a great article in some business magazine about how time is finite, but energy is renewable. Mm. And my my friend Joel Grabois brought that in for the team. This is years ago, but it has stuck with me forever. And it was everyone's time pressed, time pressed, time pressed, but. If you can renew and recharge your batteries, then you can deal with all the other crap a lot better. What does success look like to you? 
or how do you define it? However you want to take that question. What does success look like? Success looks like avoiding all the painful crap of life, like major injury, major trauma, being destitute, food scarcity. So that's good to avoid that crap. And then on the flip side, and this is me being a geek, but I'm a big fan of the Flourish model by Martin Seligman. He's a professor who invented the whole positive psychology as opposed to just disorder. And after studying happiness for 20 years, he realized happiness is too narrow. And there's actually five things you can do to make a life that's a life that's flourished or flourishing. And just really briefly, one of them is happiness and fun. So that was the first one he discovered. What makes you happy? Do that. Duh. But the other one is like being in the flow state, being in the zone. That's mm. not being happy, but it's good. So what can you do to do that? The third one is accomplishments, plain and simple. They make for a good life, although you're not always happy and you're not always in the zone. The fourth is meaning. You need to do stuff that's meaningful or purposeful in your life. And how do you get that itch scratched? And then the fifth one, which seems to be showing up in all these other things about life satisfaction and life longevity and health, physical health is the, probably the biggest one, which is relationships and having lots of good, healthy relationships of all types, whether it's a, an intimate partner or kids or parents or like neighbors or colleagues or friends in your clubs. So we need relationships. So for me, that was a very long-winded way to say success for me is finding out what I need of those five things and then trying to have a pretty balanced diet. To, to meet those five needs. I hadn't heard of that model. Thanks for sharing. I think it's called the PERMA model, P-E-R-M-A. That's the acronym. Yeah. I will look that up and I'll put it in the show notes mm. so other people can benefit from that information. So When I teach it in colleges, I'm often asked not just about marketing and branding, but career advice. So I always throw that in there because I think it's pretty important. They say money can't buy happiness, but a certain amount can buy health care. However, once oh, you've yeah. got that, there's so much more to life being fulfilling. For folks who are listening and are like, man, this sounds amazing. I want to know more about what Ethan's up to. What's the best way for them to stay up to date on what you're doing? I'm pretty active on Twitter under my personal handle, E.H. Decker. That's E.H. Decker as in double Decker. I'm also, I post kind of semi-regularly on LinkedIn. I post science findings and little articles about brand science on LinkedIn, again, under E.H. Decker, although it's cross-posted to Applied Brand Science, which is the company. And then if people want to really stay in touch, you go to appliedbrandscience.com and you can sign up for my very irregular newsletter, which has irregular content and is featured at an irregular schedule. I like not, it's not spammy because you don't even know when it's going to come. It's like a special right. surprise. <laughs> oh, I skipped this week. Okay, maybe next week. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking some time to chat with me. And I hope that you're having a good day. Thank you. Thank you.